Father, it is uh, with a profound sense of unworthiness that I come to preach your word this morning. This text that we're about to look at speaks to your greatness, your transcendence, far above any wisdom that we could possess, far above anything that we could possibly bring to the table. So, Father, as I preach this word, I pray that your spirit would enliven it, quicken our hearts to receive it, that we would know the fullness of your gospel through it because of your great glory, because of the lengths that you have gone to to display your greatness to us. Father, I pray that this preaching would be pressed deep into our hearts for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the greatest movies ever made, and it's not even close, Back to the Future. I don't know if you're a fan. The story of Marty McFly, a teen who accidentally travels back in time and messes up his future by altering the past relationship of his mother and father. And he must fix it so that his life, as he knows it, will not be undone before he can travel back to the future. It's a great movie. Then the sequel came out, and he traveled to the past again, this time having to change other events in the past caused by his work in the first movie to make sure that the future would remain safe. Then another sequel came out, and he traveled again to the past to undo more time travel troubles caused by the first two movies. Well, by the time we get to the climax of the third movie, there's so much chaos going around caused by time travel that the scientist who invented the time machine regrets ever having made the time machine in the first place. He wants to fix everything and destroy the machine, but it seems like the more that they try to fix it, the more things just keep getting messed up. Now, such as our life, the Bible says that we are a people who need rescue. We have a a cosmic problem with sin and depravity. And the harder we try to fix it, the more a fix seems to elude us. We try applying laws that we think will change us, only to spring a leak somewhere else, if you can relate to that. And then we have to turn our attention to that, to try to build a law to fix that. We, We fix that one and something else gets out of order causing us to wonder how the future will ever be made right again. But the Bible reveals a unique rescue plan for this cosmic struggle. I say unique because it's unlike anything that you or I would have thought of. It proposes that our problem is linked to sin against a holy God. And that for the problem to be made right... We need to stop trying to fix it ourselves and to let God come down and rescue us. If you have a Bible, turn to Exodus 3. That's the text we'll be in this morning, beginning in verse 1, and we'll work all the way through chapter 4, verse 17. You will find at this spot in the Bible perhaps a very familiar text in which Moses is confronted by God. It's the account of the burning bush, God's divine introduction to the man Moses. 
More than that, in this passage, we see God's plan of rescue, a plan that undermines human ability and places the means of deliverance squarely upon the shoulders of the living God. In this section, we see the God who reveals Himself and why it's necessary for Him to do so. Through this text, I believe that God wants us to consider how needy we are of God's rescue and of Him to reveal Himself and how our self-focus actually hinders the Gospel from taking root in all areas of our lives. And we're called back to God as the rescuer of His people. Well, to summarize all of that in one simple statement, this text tells us that God reveals Himself to humble His people so that the Gospel can take root. God reveals Himself to humble His people so that the Gospel can take root. Well, that sentence serves as our guide through the text of the burning bush as we put ourselves in the position of Moses and witness God's salvation come down for His people. Uh, The three points that we will see as we work through that are that God reveals Himself because we cannot reach Him. God reveals Himself to humble His people. And God reveals Himself so that the Gospel can take root. Let's begin with the first. God reveals Himself because we cannot reach Him. You know, we live in an age where almost anything is accessible, don't we? In your pocket, you have more information than people had in their entire life 100 years ago in the form of your cell phone. And you have access to just about anything dropped on your door with the push of a button. Our age is incredible. People born in the early 1900s saw electricity become common. Modern plumbing, thank the Lord, They saw communication transformed from letters to telegraphs to telephones and then eventually cell phones to texting and then FaceTime, something predicted in Back to the Future, by the way, transforming the way people communicated altogether. Transportation was transformed in the last hundred years. Transatlantic travel became something done in less than a day and with regularity. Cars shortened the distance between places. Take this island as a case study. Consider that there were once 15 to 20 churches on this island. That uh, number now has dwindled down for a number of reasons, but one of those is certainly due to the ease at which we travel from place to place. People wouldn't have dreamed of covering 100 miles in a day just 100 years ago. Now we do it with ease. And even space travel culminating in man landing on the moon. And all that is to say nothing of medical advancement. No era compares to today. One recent headline suggested that today more is learned in a day than was learned in all of human learning up to the year 1900. And yet, we still have not devised a tool to access God. It's not that we haven't been trying. Man has been trying to reach God since the beginning. Babel may be the first example to try to ascend to God. We see that all the way back in Genesis chapter 11. 
when man tried to build a tower in response to God's judgment, in response to God turning away from them, they tried to build a tower to rise up to God. That's something we might scoff at and call primitive, but we still do it today. Not with towers, but we're still reaching, still trying to access God, and yet we have not devised a way to do so. Consider that the third highest category in book sales is religion and spirituality. A $700 million a year industry. But scripture would tell us that we simply cannot ascend to the heights of God on our own. God must initiate self-disclosure. And that's precisely what he does in Exodus chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. Here we see God reaching down to man. God initiating with Moses. The truth is God must condescend. He must make himself visible to man. That's the simple suggestion in this text. So he broadcasts himself to Moses in a way that Moses would see. Descending to the mountain where Moses happens to be, doing the mundane task of leading the sheep around. God meets Moses here. And he catches his attention with something that will draw his eye in a burning bush. Moses is looking down, focused on his work. And if God doesn't reveal himself in something captivating, Moses will miss it. And by a name, God reveals himself that Moses would understand. What is God's name anyway? Well, he reveals it in a way that Moses understands here. In verse 6 he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. No, there's no indication here that Moses knew God at all. In fact, there's every indication that he did not. He must have God explicitly reveal his name because he does not recognize him. Moses has been running from who he is for nearly 40 years by this time. Perhaps Moses had created his own God, but this God was not the one that he could look upon. And indeed, he had not been looking upon previous to this encounter. That's apparent in God's appearing. Nevertheless, God appears to Moses, meeting him where he is and putting himself in terms that Moses will understand. God must meet him here. The truth is, we're like Moses. God must reveal himself to us. The most presumptuous thing that we can do is assume that we can know God or that we can speak for him. This is the God Moses was confronted with. Uh, Yet we, we try to do it. We declare that I'm religious, or by its new age name, I'm spiritual. 84% of the world would agree with that sentiment. I'm spiritual. I think God is like this. Something on my terms, they say. And they call it 
open-mindedness, as if we possess something innately of God. But if God is God, then He is utterly apart from you and I. One cannot fully know Him or comprehend Him on their own terms, or He's not God. It's a bit like believing that the moon is made of cheese because we've never been there. The mystery of God will always be resolved in something I'm familiar with if I don't go to some higher authority than my own mind. Well, the title of this sermon in your bulletin is The Humiliation of Seeing God. It's a somewhat provocative title. But we're often so condescending to God, assuming that He can be had on our own terms. There's a subtle pride in that. Matthew Barrett has called that the domestication of God. But he tells us that we ought to see God as something more, something higher than us, something that we cannot raise to. A bit like Aslan, perhaps, in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. When the children first learn of Aslan, they assume he's human like them. And then when they learn that he's a lion, they're shocked. And they ask, is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion, asks Susan. And they're told by Mrs. Beaver, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Mr. Beaver answers, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. See, a safe and domesticated God is never the God that we're confronted with in the Bible. And a safe God never confronts us the way that the confrontation occurs in this section of Exodus. That's why we like the gods that we create. When Moses approaches the bush, he confronts Moses. He commands him, Do not come near. Take off your sandals, for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. In other words, it's holier than Moses. Moses cannot come to those terms. Moses can't even approach this God in the way that he wants to. Even his shoes are unworthy to approach the presence of God by virtue of the fact that they're made by man. This God is not safe, but he's humiliating to see. God must disclose himself to us. That's that's what's happening here in Exodus. And he graciously does it in a way that Moses will understand, that he can apprehend, and in a way that is truth. And he's done the same for us. He doesn't come as a burning bush today, nor does he come as a prophet in the streets. But as the scripture reading suggested that we read just a little bit ago, through the man, Jesus Christ. That's how God has revealed himself. All of scripture is pointing to this man, Jesus. That's what the burning bush is pointing forward to. And Jesus is revealed through the Bible. It tells us who God is. This is the revelation of God. The divine self-disclosure of a holy God, which we have no ability and no business to approach outside of God's own gracious, reach down to us. And this book that you hold reveals God in gospel rescue. 
the gospel rescue that's displayed in this church. Well, maybe you think that's kind of arrogant of me to say. Maybe a, a narrow-minded claim that we hold the key to knowing God. The trouble is, unless God is schizophrenic or a liar, some absolute claim about Him must be true. Some revelation is the right revelation of God. And the claim that I just made that God reveals Himself exclusively in the Bible, in the man Jesus, through the Gospel, that's what we as a church have believed for thousands of years. Is that arrogant? I would offer that it's more arrogant and narrow-minded to believe that you have somehow discovered something novel that has not been known for thousands of years that's inherent only to you. Take off your sandals. The place you're standing is holy ground. Do not presume to make a God in your image. Submit to His revelation and His Word. God reveals Himself because we cannot reach Him. But number two, God reveals Himself to humble His people. God reveals Himself to humble His people. God defines Himself as the rescuer taking our eyes off from ourselves so that we can see Him as He truly is. God reveals Himself as the rescuer. His self-disclosure comes as one who rescues His people. Beginning in verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of My people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. God reveals Himself to Moses here, and He does it to humble Moses so that he might see him as the rescuer of the people of God who are trapped in bondage to slavery. But in order to do that, God must take Moses' eyes off from himself to shake him of his self-focus and his self-sufficiency so that God can do the rescuing. That's a humbling perspective. God must be the one who rescues. But the truth is that Moses is very prideful in this chapter. Now, there's, there's two kinds of pride. There's the man who's loud and arrogant, who knows that he can do anything, and he'll tell you about it. Maybe a little bit like Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. He wrote a whole song about himself in the movie. No one fights like Gaston. No one... Douses lights like Gaston. In a wrestling match, match, nobody bites like Gaston. For there's no one as burly and brawny as you see I've got biceps to spare and every last inch of me is covered with hair. I guess that's a good thing. <laughs> Brian Regan calls these types the me monster. That's the kind of pride that we're most acquainted with, isn't it? That loud, external pride. But then there's the kind of pride that's quietly distrusting. It doesn't boast about itself. Rather, it's, it's a cynical self-focus that says that I'm my own Savior and my hope will come from within. And I'm distrustful of anything out here. See, our era is saturated with that kind of pride. To the extent that we can't even easily see it in ourselves. But the truth is that we're infatuated with ourselves. We're infatuated with our ego. What we can do at the expense of others. 
It's the morality of the day. The morality of the day bathes in this. If only we could find ourselves, we'd be satisfied. That's the promise of all modern philosophy, self-discovery. And we're cynical of anyone who stands in the way of us and, and tells us what we must be. Let me give you an example. We recently watched Kung Fu Panda, a movie about a lazy panda who is prophesied to be the great dragon warrior who will save the world. Meanwhile, the Kung Fu master who has given his life to studying Kung Fu and, and who the panda is assigned to is reluctant to believe in him. I mean, because he doesn't know Kung Fu, right? But the moral of the story is not that the panda needs to hunker down and learn Kung Fu. And those characters who think that actually learning Kung Fu is the answer, they learn that true morality is self-discovery. The panda just needs to understand himself. Then he can save the world. We're supposed to conclude that the moral thing to do is to let people understand who they are for themselves. Then humanity will be saved. And immorality then is revealed to be hindering that sort of self-discovery. Church, that sort of thinking is how we end up with this climate of sexual freedom and self-expression like we've never seen before. But it's not exclusive to the sexual revolution. We find it in ourselves too. The kind of pride that, that is in our independent hearts that, that we don't need help from anyone or anything, that we're distrustful of outsiders and any external wisdom because we got this, don't we? But when Moses is confronted by God, he sees something very different. When God promises salvation, he challenges Moses' self-centeredness, proving a couple of things. First, that this dogma of self-discovery that we subscribe to in our culture today is just a new strain of a very old virus. And that God's self-revelation, as it's introduced here in Exodus, is the inoculation against that virus. The gospel of God's self-disclosure results in the dismantling of ourselves. Moses' reaction to seeing the bush is that Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Moses knows intuitively that he cannot look on God without dying. A theme consistent throughout the Bible. Man cannot look on God without dying. But our response to God revealing himself is just like Moses. We want to hide ourselves so that we will not be destroyed, so that I can maintain something of my ego, something of my self-sufficiency, because we're very fond of ourselves and our own self-rescue. That's why we cover our sin, right? Rather than confess it. That's why we defend ourselves when someone sees a weakness, rather than lean into it. Look at Moses when God confronts him. He's a picture of our failure to trust God is the only one who can truly save us. Moses retracts into himself like a snail, looking back at his own worth, revealing his false humility, which is really a pride, and seeing all of the reasons why God's rescue plan will not work. Moses makes four objections to God here in this chapter. Four markers of pride that need to be killed. Uh, check them out. Note how self-centered and saturated with false humility they really are. 
verse 11. But Moses said to God, this is after God said he would rescue his people, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? See, Moses believes that he's not worthy to go. And he's too small to deliver the people of God. That God must have somehow made a mistake. But God has clearly called him. He has not made a mistake. Moses falsely believes that his morality and his wisdom are higher than God's. And that the effort belongs to him somehow. We make that same error when we believe that our sin is too great. That if God really knew me, he wouldn't rescue me. You don't know who I am and how great my sin is, God. That's a form of false humility. Thinking we can out-sin God's mercy and God's rescue. That false humility is, by the way, the same root that we often make of resolution. That when I see my sin and, and see just how wide the gulf is between me and God, I'll just somehow will myself to stop sinning. To make myself right with Him by my willpower. That really undermines God's character when we do that. When we assume that we can bridge the gap between God and us. Luther responds to this, this way. To this, who am I that God should rescue me? This internal monologue that we have. This way. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, I shall be also. That's the kind of humility we need. A humbling that doesn't trust in ourselves, but turns to Christ. And sees him as the rescue. Moses' next rebuttal. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Moses thinks, I don't know enough. I, I don't have enough information to give to the people so that they will believe. Moses' subtle pride here is in believing that if he has all the right answers, he will bring salvation to his people. That they will be led by the power of his word and not God's. And if he gets it wrong, on the contrary, they won't be saved. It has the veil of doubting Moses' own strength, doesn't it? But what Moses is really doing is doubting God's strength. It's Moses saying, God can do this, but he really needs me too. I have to get God and the rest of the, rest of the way there. He can't rescue fully. We make the same error when we believe that we have to be good enough to come to God. I can't come to God this way. I need to clean up a few messes first. We have to have our doctrine perfectly aligned to believe, maybe. Jonathan Edwards helps us see the power of God and salvation here at the expense of what you think you can do to earn it. He writes, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's humbling. Moses rebuts a third time. 
Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Moses thinks, God, I'm not credible enough. Can my words really bring the power of God? As if Moses has to believe hard enough. Well, we make that mistake, that same mistake, don't we? Is my profession really good enough? Maybe I need to prove myself to God in some way. And suppose I go on sinning after I've professed faith in Him. I'm probably not saved then, right? But I become too focused on my credibility and not on God's continuing rescue in my life. When we should recognize that our unbelief is just one more reason to cling to God's strength in His gospel. Paul reminds us in Romans 8.15, You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or, or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Moses thinks that he's just not winsome enough for the task to be called by God. But God does not call Moses to be anything but a vessel to carry his great gospel rescue. To carry God's gospel rescue. In appearing to him in the burning bush, he's beckoning him to come to him and to die to his own devices. So that the glory of God may shine through. That call echoes Matthew 16, where Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Church, in pride, we presume to contribute anything to God's great salvation, to God's great gospel. Moses learned true humility when God revealed himself in his rescue. When he learned that the rescue was God's start to finish. The call of the gospel is to deny yourself, to deny your ego and what you think you can do, to nail it to the cross and to let it be killed. And if you cannot do that, you will always have a small gospel with a small God full of small promises. No different than the person who says, I think that God is like this or like that. Now, God reveals himself because we cannot reach him. God reveals himself to humble his people. And finally, God reveals himself so that the gospel can take root. God reveals himself so that the gospel can take root. We simply cannot be saved without God revealing himself as Savior in the gospel. If there's any rescue at all that we are completing, God does not get the glory and the gospel is ineffective to us. You know, God often seems to reveal himself in the midst of struggle. It's a theme throughout scripture. And it happens in our life. When we're the most hopeless, God seems to act. When Abraham is hopeless to have a child, God appears. When Israel is faced with an enemy that they cannot defeat, God appears. Here he comes in the midst of the oppression of slavery in his people. God reveals himself as a rescuer of the oppressed. That's a true historical event. 
It happened. But it's also an allegory to our oppression in sin and death. We are trapped, the Bible tells us. That's what Scripture reveals about you. Trapped in the slavery of sin without God. Born into a bondage of sin and death that you cannot escape. Oppressed under a master that you cannot deliver yourself from. No matter how hard you squirm. And God reveals himself in the midst of our struggle. He does it here in the text in the form of a burning bush. Picturing the vine of God's people. A vine that will not be consumed. That will not be destroyed. A picture that is the shadow of the deliverance of God that is to come. But it's revealed in full in the man, Jesus Christ. He tells Moses, Come, I send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Foreshadowing Jesus, the one sent by God to rescue his people. This is how God is revealing himself to you today. His rescue comes down from the heavens in Jesus Christ to show you that you cannot save yourself. That you cannot be the rescue. That you are not worthy. That you don't know the way. That you are not credible enough nor winsome enough. But that Jesus is all that is necessary to bring you back to God. Because Jesus was sent to reveal God to sinners who could not find God themselves. To show them that they could not turn to God no matter how hard they try because their pride stands in the way. Sin has caused that. Sin against a holy God. And we are slaves to that sin. This passage pictures our need for God to come down to our level. With His mighty transcendence. As the lion that roars in His might, but not against us, not opposed to us, not to cage us, but in favor of your salvation. As a bush that is not consumed, but instead consumes Christ instead. See, because of our sin, we deserve to be consumed. But God is showing us that He has made another way. That we will not be judged for our sin if we trust in Jesus. That we will be rescued from the bondage of slavery. The gospel of salvation is revealed in Jesus who broke the bonds of our slavery by obeying God's law perfectly. Something we could not do, but He could because He's truly God. And then dying the death that we owed for our pride against God. And He does so as a man. Believe in Him by faith. Trust in the rescue that He has brought. God reveals Himself in our great need to prove our need for Him at a deeper level. When Moses is confronted by God, he gives all these self-focused reasons. God is quick to fire back responses that speak to why His rescue is better. If you're not trusting Jesus this morning, what's your reason for rejecting God as He's revealed Himself in Jesus? Why is it that you continue to try to rescue yourself? Moses says, I can't rescue them. I'm not strong enough. If we're honest with ourselves, we know I can't rescue myself. God doesn't care. He says, I 
will rescue my people. And if you are a believer today, are you living in the rescue of that gospel today? Are you believing that God is the agent of rescue in your life? Or have you believed the gospel once and moved on from it? One way that we do that is by living in the weakness of our sin before the world. By not guarding or pridefully acting as if we can hold our lives together like the world does. No, we proclaim our need for Christ and His rescue to the world. When Moses rebuts God, he's given three miracles to show to Pharaoh, to reveal that the rescue comes from Pharaoh. He's to turn his staff into a serpent. He's to put his hand into his cloak, and when he pulls it out, he's to reveal that it's leprous, and he's to put it back in and reveal that it's been made clean. And then he's to pour some of the Nile out on dry ground, and it will turn to blood. All three of those are to display death to Pharaoh. The thing that refusal to turn from your sin becomes if it goes untreated. But all three show that God is able to deliver, to tame the serpent. Moses is to apprehend it, picking it up in his hand while God turns the serpent back into a staff. And Moses is to watch his hand turn back into a healthy hand after being given leprosy, brought from death to life, and proclaiming the blood that is shed in the Nile, foreshadowing the one who would shed his blood for us. Moses is to become, in his body, the one who displays God's rescue to the world, which ultimately displays the rescue of Christ. Does your life display that? Are you able to show weakness so that the world will see your need for Jesus? Or does your pride hinder you from proclaiming his greatness in your weakness? His greatness is displayed when we take joy in his rescue. That deep joy that cannot be taken away. When we have a a heart that's quick to forgive, that reveals God as your rescuer, that it doesn't come from your own effort. When we're quick to confess our sins because we've been delivered from them, we sing with great joy, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Sealed for thy courts above. Despite my tendency to wander, despite my weakness, I hand it all to God. Take it. I cannot rescue myself. Church, reveal your leprosy to the world so that you can display the great rescue of Christ. Live in your need of the gospel openly. God reveals himself because we cannot reach him. God reveals himself to humble his people. And God reveals himself so that the gospel can take root. If you continue to believe that you can come to God or rescue yourself, then you are still too self-focused. And the gospel is not taking root. The gospel comes to bear on those who have God reveal himself to them and who break under the weight of that glory 
so that they can believe the gospel. The gospel demands that your self-sufficiency be broken. Stop running around. Stop trying to repair the future as if the gospel, that rescue, is yours to make. And turn to the God who reveals himself and find comfort in the humility of being rescued by the living God. Father, thank you for these things. Thank you for the gospel, your self-revelation in Jesus. Thank you for our need that we have for you. Father, even our sin that has revealed how broken we are so that we could turn